Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're having a chat about referendums in Australia, from what they are and how they work, to, of course, historical examples of referendums that have both succeeded and failed throughout Australia's history. In about a month, Australians everywhere will head to the polls and vote in the first constitutional referendum held here in almost 25 years. It has been a while. And this vote, as I'm sure you're aware if you're in Australia, is a very important one. It's a referendum on whether to amend the Constitution of Australia to include an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament to further recognise and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we live. Indigenous Australians have had a rough go of it for a very long time, so anything that the nation can do to support them, to improve their lives and their standing within our country, anything we can do at all, we should do. And so I am, of course, hoping that this upcoming referendum is successful. But I tell you what, it is not very easy for a constitutional referendum to gain approval in Australia for many bloody reasons, which we will get across today, don't you worry. Only a fraction of all of the referendums proposed have actually been carried over the years. The Australian Constitution is notoriously difficult to amend. But... We're not just going to talk about what these referendums were and when they took place. We'll also talk about talk about the Constitution itself and how referendums relate to it, uh, how referendums work and why they're so important. And then we'll get stuck into examples of historical referendums before finally talking about why it has always been so difficult for them to succeed and briefly why it is so important that this one coming up does. If you're a new listener, checking out this podcast for the first time as you gear up to vote in what will be for many people your first ever referendum, welcome. By all means, welcome. It really is great to have you along. Hopefully you learn a thing or two today and have a fuller understanding of referendums and their place in Australian history and politics. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Great to have you along as well. Hope you're ready for a bit more Australian history to go along with episodes like the Eureka Rebellion, episode 152, Ned Kelly, episodes 20 and 21, and of course, the Great Emu War, episode 75, Get Across Them. But 
A lot to get across today as well. Of course, long episode incoming this time around. So get comfortable and settle in as we work our way through the history of Australian referendums. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. Going all the way back to the 1st of January 1901, when the Constitution of Australia came into effect and in doing so brought Australia into being as a nation. You can hear about the colonisation and the federation of Australia in previous episodes, episodes 239 to 240. Get across them. They'll go a long way in explaining how we got to where we did in 1901. But now it's 1901. Now the Commonwealth of Australia has been created and its supreme law is the Constitution. The Constitution of Australia, a thoroughly unexciting, if honestly, rather effective founding document. That's what a constitution is, in case you weren't sure. It essentially sets up all the rules and regulations that a government has to abide by while running a country. It tells the government what it can and can't do, what it is and isn't allowed to make laws about. It establishes things like who can be elected and for how long and who gets to vote for these people in elections. Some constitutions also protect basic human rights, although ours does not do a very good job of that at all. We don't have a Bill of Rights or anything really like some other countries do. Also, the Constitution of Australia is not very long. You'd think that it would be this mighty, hefty, great big legal tome, but no, it's just over 12,000 words. Or to put it another way, if I were to just sit here and read it out and pass that off as content for the podcast, it would uh, it'd be a two-parter. It's not super long at all. Um, but then again, compared to some other constitutions, it, it does go on a bit. Uh, I actually would have to pad out the original constitution of the United States if I wanted to make that an episode as it comes in at a very crisp 4,500 words. It's, it's very short. I think it's the shortest constitution in the world. Anyway, largely speaking, the constitution of Australia is generally a pretty solid piece of supreme law. It's obviously not without its problems, but overall, I'd say that it's functioned pretty well over the years. It's set up the Australian government, which has, again, in broad terms, functioned reasonably well over the years. The odd hiccup here and there, but mostly it's been smooth sailing from a structural and procedural standpoint. The Australian government system, um, as set up by the Constitution, it is a hybrid Washminster system, meaning that it borrows elements from the parliamentary democracy processes of both the US and the UK, Washington and Westminster, Washminster. Uh, for instance, like the US, we have a House of Parliament that represents the population by proportion, the House of Representatives, and a House of Parliament that represents all of the states equally, which is called the Senate, just as it is in the United States. The United Kingdom doesn't have this. They have the House of Lords instead of the Senate, uh, an unelected upper house, different to us and, and to the US. However, our head of government, and for that matter, the executive branch of government, the cabinet, actually sits in parliament, like in the UK, whereas in the US, the president and their cabinet aren't part of Congress at all. So there are differences between both systems. As I say, it is a hybridized system. Um, but like both systems, we have three branches of government that all provide checks and balances on the other. We have the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. And all of this, again, set out in the Constitution. The executive is the prime minister and the senior cabinet ministers, although the prime minister isn't technically, technically mentioned in the Constitution, but that's not super important. Um, the cabinet ministers are people like the treasurer, the minister for foreign affairs, the minister for education, the senior senior ministerial portfolios tend to end up in, in, in cabinet. 
And these are the people that set the government's policy agenda and introduce much of the legislation that is then debated by the next branch of government, the legislature. The legislature, very simply, is parliament. So the executive is actually part of the legislature, while also being its own branch of government as, as well. And it's in parliament where laws are made as legislation is debated, amended, and then passed or not passed, as, as the case may be. And finally, we have the judiciary, the court system. And the most important aspect of the court system when it comes to constitutional law is, of course, the High Court of Australia. The High Court is the only court with the authority to rule on constitutional law. Remember how I said a constitution tells a government what they can and can't do? Well, if someone thinks Parliament has passed a law that goes against what's written in the constitution, they can take it to the High Court, which will then decide whether the law in question is constitutional, that is, whether it's allowed under the provisions in the constitution. So the High Court is able to check the power of the legislature if a government oversteps its power as framed by the Constitution. The High Court can step in and say, well, no, mate, I don't bloody think so. And this has happened many, many times. The most famous High Court case being, of course, the 1992 Mabo decision, a landmark case that completely changed Australian land law and helped this nation on its ongoing journey to properly recognising Indigenous Australians as the traditional and original inhabitants of Australia. Um, and the second most famous high court case is probably the uh, the Dingo Ate My Baby case, Chamberlain versus the Queen, but that's, that's another story altogether and doesn't really have much to do with the Constitution because it was an appellate case. So it, it doesn't really come into uh, what we're talking about today. Anyway, the reason that I'm talking about all, all of this, the reason I'm, ex- I'm explaining everything about these uh, branches of government and, and the way that the Constitution works is because this is what the Constitution is all about, setting up the Australian government and its branches, how they operate and what they can and what they can't do. It is an incredibly important document for Australia and Australians everywhere, the founding document of our Commonwealth, the supreme law of the nation. So as much as you might think it's all bloody pie in the sky nonsense, these bastards in Canberra talking about stuff that no one cares about, if you're an Australian, this document and its operation affects you and your daily life whether you know it or not. However, it is not by any means a perfect document. For instance, some critical elements of the operation of Australian government rely on something called convention. Constitutional conventions are essentially just unwritten rules that everyone, most of the time anyway, adheres to. This is something that we inherited from the United Kingdom, things like the role of the Prime Minister, which, as I said, isn't laid out in the Constitution, or the fact that the Governor-General should generally follow the advice of a Prime Minister. There are plenty of other constitutional conventions as well, and it was these conventions, or actually more specifically the fact that these conventions were ignored, this was what uh, led to Australia's biggest constitutional crisis, the Whitlam dismissal in 1975. Additionally, unlike many constitutions, for instance, the constitutions of the United States, Canada, India, France, the list goes on, the Australian Constitution lacks anything like a Bill of Rights. In fact, the Australian Constitution barely protects any human rights at all. The right to trial by jury, the right to just compensation for the compulsory acquisition of property, um, and protections from being discriminated against based on which state you're from, are some of the very few human rights protections that uh, Australian citizens enjoy because of the Constitution, woefully inadequate. And um, it gets worse because not only does Australia lack anything in the way of constitutionally guaranteed rights, 
we're actually the only common law country on earth that doesn't even have legislated protection of our human rights. Now, hopefully this will never matter. We've had bad governments, sure, but we've never had truly oppressive and evil ones. But still, I wouldn't mind some constitutional amendments brought about to protect basic human rights in this country, to be honest. So, look, bottom line is this. The Constitution is not perfect, and sometimes it needs to be changed. And as such, the Constitution itself has a built-in mechanism for when these changes need to be made, when amendments need to be undertaken. Section 128, the very last section in the document. However, as we are here to talk about, changing the Constitution of Australia is a very hard thing to do, and not just because of the process set out by Section 28, although that doesn't help, it was deliberately designed to be quite difficult. And what is this process, you may ask? What is this difficult process that we have to undergo to change the Constitution? The process used to change the Constitution of Australia, of course, is through constitutional referendums, one of which you'll be taking part in in just a couple of weeks if you're Australian. And uh, if you're not Australian, well, I don't know, maybe it'll be on like page eight of your local newspaper if we're lucky. So, Referendums don't come along very often. I feel like a lot of Australians don't really understand what they're about or how they work or what place they occupy in our history. So we're going to get across everything. First, we're going to talk about how referendums actually function, what's required in order for them to be successful. Then we'll talk about the most famous referendums from Australia's history and what they involved and what their ultimate outcome was. And then, as I mentioned, we will talk about why it is so very bloody difficult for referendums to succeed and why historically the overwhelming majority of them have failed. So, We start right at the beginning with how a referendum actually comes about. And just to make things clear, today we're only going to talk about constitutional referendums, not the handful of plebiscites that have been held in Australia throughout its history. For instance, um, the ones held in 1916 and 1917 on conscription, or more recently, the one held in 2017 on, uh, on marriage equality. Important events, absolutely, but not ones affected by the Constitution. Uh, so they're not what we're what we're going to talk about today. Anyway, so a constitutional referendum begins when a bill is introduced to Parliament, generally by, generally by the government, that proposes the referendum and its question. And uh, this referendum has to be passed by both Houses of Parliament. If it fails to pass, uh, to pass through Parliament twice, then the Governor-General can still approve the referendum, even without parliamentary approval. Um, and by convention, the Governor-General wouldn't do this unless the Prime Minister asks them to, but still, they could. The uncertainty of constitutional convention strikes yet again. You love to see it. Anyway, let's assume that the referendum bill is passed, um, and that means between two and six months after the, the passing of this bill, there then has to be a public vote. The actual referendum itself, where Australian electors everywhere are required to have their say and vote on it. Now, Australian listeners won't find anything unusual about that last sentence, but international listeners will be sitting there and going, well, hang on, hang on one second. What? Required to vote? Yes. Australia is one of very few nations on earth to have compulsory voting. There are actually only 21 nations worldwide that have universal civic duty voting, and most of them are in Latin America. But it gets more interesting than that because of those 21 nations, only 10 actually enforce the laws they have about compulsory voting, and Australia is one of those 10. By law, nations like Belgium, Mexico, Greece, Thailand, there's there's lots of others, 
they have compulsory well actually there's not lots of others that's the whole point but there are others um, they all have compulsory voting but it's unenforced and there aren't penalties if you don't show up and on election day but in australia as i'm sure all the australian listeners are aware compulsory voting is enforced and you do face penalties for failing to vote as I experienced firsthand over 10 years ago when I forgot to vote in a local council election. I copped a $50 fine for that. But even so, I think compulsory voting is bloody terrific. I think it's fantastic. And I think democracies that don't enforce it are actually undermining their own legitimacy. Elections with compulsory voting have much higher voter turnout, obviously, and are therefore far more representative. Um, compulsory voting combats demagogues with fanatical supporters by ensuring that broad sections of society come out to the ballot box, not just the politically hyper-motivated. It forces candidates to try to appeal to and work for more people, not just their rusted-on supporters. And, of course, it removes the barriers to voting that pseudo-democracies like the US have in place to try to disenfranchise people. In Australia, this just isn't an issue. Everyone can vote because everyone has to vote. It is the fairest system there is. I have never seen a convincing argument against compulsory voting. Because let's say you don't want to vote. Fine. Just turn up at your local primary school or community centre on election day, tick your name off the list, buy a democracy sausage for the fundraiser, and then submit a blank ballot. You're not actually forced to make an actual valid proper vote. You're just forced to turn up and take a ballot paper. They don't watch you while you fill it out. You can draw a dick on it or something before submitting it. Do whatever you want. Anyway, look, sorry, whatever. Compulsory voting, it's great. I was honestly flabbergasted when I learnt the overwhelming majority of nations that that label themselves as democracies don't have it or enforce it. To me, it seems so obviously necessary to the legitimacy of a democratically elected, responsible, representative government that I don't know why you wouldn't have it, but whatever. Anyway, referendums. Once the referendum bill is approved, as I say, it's put to the people and we all have to go out and vote on it whether we like it or not. And usually the referendum is a simple yes or no question. Do you approve of constitutional change X? There will, of course, be, have been campaigning. There will be official positions that have uh, been established by the yes and no sides of the argument with supporting literature so vote, voters can properly educate themselves on the issue, as we're seeing, of course, right now with the upcoming referendum. So you go to the polls and you vote yes or no. But here's where it gets a bit complicated, because it is not as simple as a majority of people throughout the nation voting in favour of the referendum. That in and of itself isn't enough necessarily to get it across the line. Even if 51% of all Australians vote for it, that doesn't guarantee that the constitutional amendment will be carried. Because a referendum in Australia needs what's called a double majority. It needs a majority of voters in a majority of states in order to pass. In other words, for a referendum to be successful, it needs over 50% of voters nationwide to vote yes, and it also needs individual majorities in at least four of our six states as well. And this is a provision that was added to the Constitution while it was being written very deliberately to make sure that the big states, namely Victoria and New South Wales, don't steamroll the smaller states with a constitutional amendment that they don't like. And how likely is this to come up, you, you may wonder? Well, it has happened no fewer than five times. Five referendums have resulted in more than 50% of the population of Australia voting yes at large, 
but three or more of the six states failed to achieve individual majorities. I know this is confusing, but but have a think about it, right? Let's say everyone in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland voted yes in a referendum. That right there is over half the population. So this means that, again, these bigger states can gang up on the smaller states and force through political outcomes that don't enjoy the broad support of Australians across the nation. So this is why you need a majority of people within a majority of states in order for a referendum to pass. At least half the people in at least four of the states have to approve. So let's let's think about it in more practical terms. Let's say there's a referendum where a majority of voters across all of Australia say yes. But let's say this majority is heavily concentrated in just three states, probably Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, the most popular states. It's possible that the referendum could win the popular vote while being heavily disapproved of in South Australia, Western Australia and Tasmania, where let's say, I don't know, only 25% of all the people in those states vote yes. So this might be enough to tip the national vote well over 50%. But in those three states, people clearly don't approve of this hypothetical referendum and the constitutional change that it would entail. And so without a majority of states, it would not be carried, it would fail. This need for a double majority ensures that there is actual, proper, widespread support for constitutional change, and as I say, protects smaller states from being steamrolled by big ones. This was one of the compromises that uh, was agreed upon when the constitution was being drafted in order to get the smaller states to actually agree to a federation. Big states can't walk all over small ones because of this, And small states can't gang up on big ones because of the national majority requirement. But that's that's actually much less of an issue. A referendum has never failed after getting approval in four states while losing the overall national vote. Um, And by the way, also, we should probably mention the territories, the Northern Territory and the Australian Capital Territory. They're not states, and therefore they don't factor into the the second half of the, the double majority clause. Um, but, of course, their uh, smallish populations are included in the overall national vote. They're still factored in there. But this wasn't always the case, as we'll, uh, as we'll come to in a little bit. Anyway, when I say that referendums are difficult to pass, you're probably starting to see why. Although the, uh, the need for a double majority isn't the only factor, as we'll come to. And uh, if a referendum does fail, that's it. It's the end of the line. You can pack up and go home. Thanks for playing. But if a a referendum succeeds, if it is carried, then it goes back to the Governor-General for final approval, and then the amendment is made to the Constitution and it becomes part of the supreme law of the nation. However, out of 44 total referendums from across Australia's history held on just 19 separate occasions, many referendum questions were posed concurrently with others, and uh, on top of this, many referendums have also been held at, at the same time as federal elections. Save you a bit of time getting multiple things sorted at once. Nice one there. Anyway, yes, um, out of 44 total referendums, there have been a grand total of eight times, eight times when they've actually passed and gone on to amend our Constitution. By way of comparison, the United States Constitution, a constitution that has been described by some legal experts as, quote, the world's most difficult to amend and, quote, virtually impervious to amendment, it has been amended 27 times. Although 10 of those happen in one go, the Bill of Rights, and and one of them was to repeal a previous amendment, the one on prohibition, but still... That is a lot of constitutional amendments compared to our eight. 
And what are those eight, you may ask? Well, some of them are extremely dull. One on Senate elections, two on state debts. <laughs> Boring. Um, there was an important one on, on social services in 1946. Uh, this, uh, this amendment gave the federal government the ability to legislate on social services, welfare, pensions, unemployment, that sort of thing. It expanded the government's ability to support healthcare programs that would in time become the, the universal healthcare that we're all so very, very lucky to have access to here in Australia, Medicare and the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. So a very important referendum but one that actually didn't pass with the widest margin at uh, at only 54% across the entire nation, although it was approved in all six states individually. There are also three important successful referendums that were held concurrently in 1977, alongside a fourth that failed. When people went to the polls to vote in 1977, they had to vote on four separate referendum topic topics all at once. Um, one of the ones that succeeded got rid of constitutional conventions surrounding Senate vacancies in the wake of the uh, 1975 constitutional crisis, the Whitlam dismissal. Uh, a very good change. I'm generally in favour of either codifying or getting rid of constitutional convention. Because, sure, it works most of the time, but why take the chance? Why run the risk of another constitutional crisis like what happened in 1975? We don't need that. Um, another successful 1977 referendum was uh, one that imposed term lim limits on high court judges. High court judges in Australia have to retire when they're 70, an absolutely brilliant piece of law, uh, one that I'm sure many people listening to this in the US wish that they had over there. And this one, it passed with resounding support. 80% of the population overall, almost everyone was in favour of it, and for good reason. Otherwise, you end up with situations like they have over in the United States, unelected, unrepresentative dinosaurs having far too much power. And finally, the third successful referendum question from 1977 was, interestingly, actually about referendums themselves. Remember how I said that people in the territories weren't always able to vote in referendums? It wasn't until this referendum in 1977 that they were then able to. Just under 78% of non-Territorian Australians agreed that we should, after all, include them in the process. It's only fair. And so in the eight referendums that have been held since 1977, people from the ACT and the Northern Territory have been able to vote in referendums. And uh, also, just, just in case you're, you're wondering, the fourth referendum question uh, was about when senators would be elected. It was actually one of those referendums that we were talking about before, one of the five that uh, got a majority of the, na of the, the, national, the nationwide vote, uh, but didn't get a majority of states. 62% of Australians voted yes, but only 48% of Queenslanders and people from Western Australia did, and only 34% of Tasmanians. So despite a very clear national majority, it didn't get individual majorities in enough states, and so therefore it wasn't carried. So that is seven successful referendums. But what about the eighth? Well, as you may know, in 1967, there was an extremely important constitutional referendum that was held, one that attracted the highest level of voter support in Australian history at a staggering 90.77%. Just as the one in front of us today in 2023 is, this referendum back in 1967 was on the position and the status of Indigenous Australians in Australian society. In strict legal terms, the referendum sought to alter the constitution in two ways. Firstly, to count Indigenous Australians in the census and in doing so actually provide a 
basic recognition of them as inhabitants of this nation, this country, a land that they have lived on for tens of thousands of years, long before we showed up with murder and disease and all the other wonderful trappings of civilization. And secondly, it empowered the federal government to make laws directly pertaining to Indigenous people and Indigenous affairs. Prior to this amendment, this had been the legislative domain of the states. But with this amendment, Indigenous affairs were now a federal concern. And so the federal government was empowered to make laws to benefit and support Indigenous Australians. Although, as legal experts have since pointed out, there is nothing about the way that the amendment was worded that says the, the laws that the federal government makes have to be beneficial. And uh, within the lifetime of many people listening during the uh, Howard years under Prime Minister John Howard, this was actually put to the test when this aspect of the, uh, the Constitution was invoked to pass laws that were of direct negative impact to Indigenous communities in Australia. So... That's a wonderful thing to have on the history books. Anyway, it's often mistakenly said that this amendment was what finally granted Indigenous people in Australia uh, Australian citizenship, which uh, it's said that they didn't have before, but that isn't quite true. Indigenous Australians born in 1921 or onwards were British subjects legally, which automatically made them citizens in 1949, along with other non-Indigenous Australians after the passage of the 1948 Nationality and Citizenship Act. Um, As for the right of Indigenous Australians to vote, for the most part, that was was a a matter for the states up until the 1962 Commonwealth Electoral Act, which gave Indigenous Australians the option to enrol, although they weren't affected by compulsory voting laws until 1983. So while the 1967 referendum wasn't strictly speaking about citizenship or voting rights for Indigenous people, this referendum nonetheless took on a hugely important symbolic role in Australian politics. Australia was, at this point in its history, thankfully, undergoing swift and quite radical social change. This referendum came to represent how Australian society in general did want to change and improve the position of Indigenous Australians. Now, I don't want to give people too much credit because even today, Indigenous Australians have a a really rough go of things. As I say, even at the best of times, thanks to years and years of embedded structural racism that still persists to the present day. But all the same, the 1967 constitutional referendum was a step. It was a big step and an important step in the right direction. In the 1970s, empowered by the positive result of this referendum, Indigenous people fought for and won things like land rights and expanded protection of traditional cultural links to land and country. It didn't solve all the problems Indigenous people faced, far from it, but again, it was a step. And it was a step that reflected very well on our nation as one that was seeking a fairer and more equitable society for everyone. 90% of Australians in 1967 voted in support of a referendum designed to benefit Indigenous Australians, which is something to keep in mind as we head towards the referendum in October. Anyway, those are the eight successful constitutional referendums that have taken place in Australia's history, held on Senate elections, two of them on state debt, social services, Indigenous affairs, Senate vacancies, the retirement age of judges, and on referendums themselves. But what about the other 36, the ones that failed? Well, we're not going to 
talk about all of them. Obviously, we can't go through each and every one of them. We don't have the time. And also, most of them are just extremely boring relating to things like expanding the federal government's power to legislate in respect to trade and commerce or aviation and air travel. Uh, but we can have a, a quick squiz at some of the more important ones. For instance, in 1944, wartime Prime Minister John Curtin attempted to greatly expand the federal government's powers for a period of five years uh, to deal with both winning and then recovering from the Second World War, but it failed. Australians were, and still are, very sceptical about expanding the power that politicians enjoy. Um, in 1951, a referendum was held on essentially whether the federal government was allowed to ban the Australian Communist Party, which failed as well. And those dirty, bloody commies, they stuck around until 1991, when they dissolved the party and became the New Left Party instead. And uh, there was one in 1988 that, it, that, that sought to enshrine local government in the constitution man i'm try i'm really trying here to find referendums that were interesting or important but they're just they just aren't really that many um except for of course the most famous and perhaps most important of all of australia's failed referendums the 1999 referendum on whether to leave the british monarchy behind and establish a new australian republic and sadly, this referendum, as I say, failed with only 45% of the popular vote. It failed for many reasons. Staunch monarchists opposed it, as you can imagine. Obviously, they, they've got no interest in Australia becoming a republic, but so did, it may surprise you to learn, staunch republicans. Now, why did they oppose Australia becoming a republic in this way? Well, because the model proposed for the new Australian republic was essentially just cosmetic, it involved removing the monarch and the governor-general and replacing them with a president who would be appointed by parliament. And so for radical Republicans, this wasn't enough. Many of them voted no, hoping that they would have another chance to vote on the issue and enact sweeping political reform with a proper election-based presidential system. But in my view, it is a great shame that this referendum failed. It is rather embarrassing, I feel, to have an English king or queen on our money these days when they have absolutely no real-world political relevance anymore whatsoever to us. I would have quite happily accepted the cosmetic change that this referendum proposed purely for the symbolism of Australia becoming its own nation, its own republic untethered from the outdated principles of monarchy. But I was 10 years old and I couldn't vote, so don't blame me. Hopefully there will be another referendum held on the matter sooner rather than later. And hopefully this time we will finally move on from the British and from monarchy altogether. So now, after establishing the fact that Australian referendums have a success rate of around 18%, they're extremely likely to fail, historically speaking, after establishing the fact that it is undoubtedly very difficult indeed pass a referendum in Australia, we can now ask ourselves, why? Why did Australia's longest-serving Prime Minister Robert Menzies once say that the truth of the matter is that to get an affirmative vote from the Australian people on a referendum proposal is one of the labours of Hercules? There are many, many reasons, and... Uh, we're going to go through them. We're going to run down as many of them as I can think of here. Number one, section 128 of the Constitution, as we said, it sets up the process for a referendum. And as we established while talking about this process, it was designed deliberately 
to be a very difficult process. And this makes sense. Generally speaking, it's a good thing. It should be difficult to change the constitution. Not impossible, obviously, but it, it, it should be hard. There should be a high threshold for success. So the supreme law of our country doesn't feel malleable or, or meaningless. Because of the double majority requirement, the no camp is always playing with a stack deck from the beginning, um, as even with everything else being equal, uh, a referendum is, procedurally speaking, much more likely to fail than succeed. Reason number two, it is extremely rare for any referendum issue to have bipartisan support, which is to say that if the Labor Party supports it, the Liberal National Coalition doesn't, and generally vice versa. There have been exceptions to this, of course, but Australia's broadly two-party system means that a lack of bipartisan support for most referendums results in significant sections of the Australian population already having their mind made up from the jump. They just follow the party line without even really thinking about it. So from the outset, while you do already have a sizable number of people who are going to say yes no matter what, you also have a sizable no vote, which will only grow due to all the other factors that we're going to get into. Like reason number three, which is kind of an extension of reason number two. No matter the issue, there are just always going to be people who strongly oppose any change being made. And no matter what the issue is, their perspectives are treated as equal to those who are in favour. Now, this sounds all well and good, right? There are two sides to every story. Both sides of the issue should be considered equally, and you should go through the arguments uh, that, that people are putting forth and decide for yourself. But when you're campaigning for, I don't know, let's, let's, just, let's just think of an issue at random. Let's say um, boy, Indigenous affairs, the issue of recognition, truth, reconciliation and progress. Let's say that let's just hypothetically imagine there's a referendum on that, shall we? Treating those with backwards, regressive and reprehensible views, treating those as being on equally legitimate footing with those attempting to secure a more honest, open and inclusive future for our country that doesn't stack up not as uh, not as far as i'm concerned at least yes sure there are two sides to every story but sometimes the other side is just not worth hearing but it does get heard loud and clear opponents of change have never ever had a problem getting their message out as australia's 36 failed referendums would tell you reason number 4 Generally speaking, Australians are generally suspicious of and hostile towards government and politicians. We don't tend to think much of politicians and their agendas. And of course, we're not unique in that regard, but that does make us instantly very wary of anyone pushing a political agenda strongly enough to want a referendum on it. Why, we ask, what's in it for you or what's in it for me? Australians are, perhaps very wisely, reluctant to trust the words of politicians and so are naturally resistant to being sold new political ideas. And this obviously hampers the passage of successful referendums because all this suspicion and hostility towards politics means that people will just generally err on the side of caution and vote no so they don't get conned. Number five, which is kind of related to number four, sometimes the issues that are being voted on are complex and complicated and their consequences aren't easily understood. It's all 
bloody highfalutin legalistic nonsense. At the end of the day, I don't know what they're talking about. Bastards, a lot of them. They're probably trying to bloody stitch me up here. I'm not having a bar of it. So, again, the natural suspicions that Australians have towards politicians means that when something is put in front of them that they don't fully understand, they'll just go, nope, bugger this and bugger you. I'm not having anything to do with this. It's rare that people offer support for any issue that they don't properly understand. So if the issue in question is just too complex or too difficult to grasp, people are just going to vote no, which makes sense. Number six, as we've talked about, Australia has shown a very clear pattern of being reluctant to expand the power of politicians and government. And most constitutional referendums do exactly that. They expand uh, governmental power. And so they're fighting an uphill battle in most cases because people are very sceptical about further empowering a class of people that are already mistrusted and broadly disliked. And on top of that, as often as not, state leaders will often campaign against national referendums because usually if the federal government is gaining power, the state governments are the the ones that are losing it. So people vote no because they don't want to further expand the power of politicians, which again is what constitutional referendums generally do. Number seven, and this is an interesting one here. Funnily enough, compulsory voting actually gets in the way of the success of constitutional referendums. Now, why is this? Because no matter what you do, no matter how much you campaign and how hard you try to get your message across to the Australian Australian electorate, there is always going to be a section of society that just doesn't care, won't care, can't care. These people are so politically unengaged that they will never, never, ever, ever have even a skerrick of political investment. And that's fine. Political disengagement is not a crime. It is not something that people have to be interested in. You can live your life completely disengaged from politics and never put a foot wrong. That's fine. But in Australia, you still have to vote. You still have to turn up at the polling place. You still have to get your ballot paper. And at that point, you might as well just fill it in. And in that situation, these people who are so thoroughly disinterested in politics altogether, they are overwhelmingly likely to vote no, because they just don't care. Just keep things as they are, mate. What's all the fuss about? It's fine now. Why are we, why are we talking about this? Let's get back to the footy, mate. Chuck's view, would you? Again, there's nothing wrong with political uninvestment. There's nothing wrong with going through your life just ignoring politics largely, but you can't ignore the fact that this this cohort of the Australian population is probably just going to vote no because they don't care. They don't care enough about the issue. They're not engaged enough in politics to ever be prompted to want to change anything at all. And finally, number eight, perhaps the most important reason outside of all of the structural and procedural obstacles that referendums face with their with their high threshold for success in the double majority. The fact is that generally speaking, the default position that most Australians take on questions posed in referendums is no. This is clearly defined by the history of Australian referendums. There is a clearly clearly defined historical scepticism within Australia towards referendums. And so if you strip away every other factor and look purely at voting trends in the abstract, it's very clear that in the same way a court of law will consider a, uh, an accused person to be innocent until proven guilty, when it comes to Australian referendums, it's no until you can convince me of yes and not the other way around. Australians are very reluctant indeed, broadly speaking, 
to vote yes in referendums. And this historical precedent is almost self-perpetuating. We vote no in referendums because that's what we've always done, which leads to more no votes, which of course leads to the strengthening of the idea that we always vote no in referendums. It's fair to say that Australia is a cautious nation, politically speaking, not necessarily overwhelmingly conservative in the traditional sense. I mean, right now there are left-wing governments in power federally in five of the six states and in both territories. But having said that, we're still very wary of change. I don't love this about Australia. I would like to see more political dynamism, generally speaking, more reform, more progress. But then again, I will admit we do have a political system that, for the most part, just works. So I do understand why there has been huge historical reluctance to mess with what we've got going on through constitutional change. So, with all of that said, for those Australians listening, I do hope that this episode has helped you prepare for the upcoming referendum, arming you with more detailed knowledge of how referendums work, what has gone on with them in the past, and, of course, just how bloody difficult it is to get them to get them across the line. And for all the non-Australians listening, well... I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit more about the Australian political system and one very specific but very important aspect of our history. But now it's just to the Australians that I want to deliver these closing thoughts very seriously for just a few moments here. The referendum that's coming up in a few weeks is an opportunity for this country to demonstrate a positive, forward-thinking and genuine commitment to improving the lives of Indigenous people and their place in Australian society. It isn't very nice to think about, but for centuries, Indigenous Australians have done nothing but suffer at the hands of colonists and settlers, and even today, when Indigenous Australians have a life expectancy eight years shorter than non-Indigenous Australians, when they have higher rates of disease and infant mortality, when they commit suicide at twice the average rate in this nation, when they have far less opportunity to be educated and trained, when they are far more likely to be locked up and incarcerated, today it is time for us to try to do something to change that. I'm not saying that this referendum, if it passes, will magically fix everything. It certainly won't undo the horrors of the past, and it won't all of a sudden mean that Australia is a perfect society in which Indigenous people don't face any extra hardship or suffering or mistreatment or discrimination. But just think of the message it would send, not only to the world at large, but to future generations of Australians if this referendum fails. We can look back proudly on the 90% approval rate that the 1967 referendum on Indigenous affairs got. 90% of Australians in 1967 voted in favour of it. Again, it didn't solve everything, but as I said, it was a step. It was progress, and Australia was on board. And now, as I write and record this episode... It looks like people are going to give in to fear and misinformation. 
They're going to be led down the wrong path by scaremongers who can't stand to face or acknowledge the shameful parts of our history and the inequalities of the present day. People who are too afraid to take responsibility and try to go some way in righting the historical wrongs of the past. The voice won't fix everything. But just imagine, just imagine in a hundred years, a Tin Pot History podcast just like this one, shamefully talking about how the 2023 referendum failed. How Australians rejected hope and inclusion and unity. How we spurned the traditional owners of this land on which we all live. The people who were here 65,000 years before the rest of us turned up. This voice, as those who are making the case for it have said, is about recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our constitution and paying respect to 65,000 years of culture and tradition, listening to advice from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about matters that affect their lives so governments make better decisions, and making practical progress in Indigenous health, education, employment and housing so people have a better life. And so... I ask you, as someone who has shown interest in history by listening to this podcast, to consider the weight of the choice that is before you on the 14th of October. A choice to fundamentally place yourself on either the right or the wrong side of history. Don't be an opponent of progress. Don't give in to the fear-mongering. Don't take the easy option, the default option. Don't accept failure as a foregone conclusion in this referendum and vote no. In the upcoming referendum, knowing now as you do just how hard it is to get one to succeed, and knowing now as you do just how important this one is, don't take a chance on the 14th of October. Do the right thing for the future of our nation and vote yes to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the uh, rather long history of referendums in Australia. And hopefully after having listened to this, you are now better informed than ever. And you know just exactly what we're getting ourselves into with this upcoming referendum. And hopefully... You'll vote yes. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, If you're a new listener that's just checking it out for the first time, again, welcome. By all means, welcome. I'm so glad that you stuck around right through to the end. And I hope you'll stick around for many more episodes in the past. The good news is, if you like this this, this podcast, there are so many bloody more episodes for you to listen to. Over 270 of them for you to work your way through. There are some stinkers in there. Not all of them are great, but... There are some pretty good ones. And if you're interested in, in, in Australian history specifically, plenty of that. I mentioned uh, the Eureka Stockade. I, I mentioned Ned Kelly. Uh, of course, there is uh, the Great Emu War. There's also stuff like the Rum Rebellion, the Shark Arm Murder, Moondine Joe. There are so many wonderful stories uh, about Australia. But we don't just... We don't just uh, focus on the highlights. I've also gotten across some of the darker chapters in Australia's history. You can go back and listen to the episode that we did on the white Australia policy as well. But on top of all the 
ups and downs of Australian history, there are hundreds of other episodes from all around the world for you to enjoy and also maybe for you to build upon as well. If you want to get in touch with the show with a topic suggestion, please do head to halfarsehistory.net and it's there that you'll find a contact form that goes straight to my inbox. I read every single email that I get. Unfortunately, I can't respond to all of them, but I'd love to hear from you, especially if you're a newer listener. I'd love to hear how you came across the show, what your thoughts are, whether you've got feedback, positive or negative, after having listened to this show uh, or any others. So uh, please do get in touch. As I say, it is uh, it, it really is wonderful to hear from, from people who are listening. And if you're an old listener, well, you know what's coming next. All the boring housekeeping stuff uh, coming your way right now. Halfhousehistory.net, not just the place to find the contact form, but also old episodes, links to the merch shop as well. There's a range of merchandise there that you can get your hands on should you so choose. And if you want to support the show and what we're doing here at Half House History, I say we, I keep saying we, it's just me. There's no one else. I don't have anyone else working on the show. It is completely a one-man band. But if you want to support me as I uh, as I continue to make this show, patreon.com slash History is the best place to do that. Uh, and if you support me there, you not only get ad-free listing, but of course, gain access to all sorts of other secret uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, uh, uncut episodes, uh, early access to episodes, and exclusive Patreon-only merch. So sign up today and make sure that half Ass History keeps going for as long as it possibly can. Um... Apart from that, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent, especially if uh, there's someone in your life that uh, is perhaps undecided on the voice or wants to learn more about referendums and how they work. If there's someone that there's someone that you know that needs a little more convincing as to just how important this uh, upcoming event is, send them this episode, get them to have a listen to it and uh, inform themselves about uh, about the role of referendums in Australia's history and, again, just how important they are to uh, to this nation. Anyway, I'm going to close things out, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. I couldn't find any questions about the Australian Constitution, probably because it is one of the most boring political documents ever written, but I did, found a, I did find a good one on the American Constitution. This one comes to us from your Redditor The Vicious Cycle, who asks... The US Constitution gave people the right to bear arms, but what about all the other parts of the bear?